This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. We're going to be talking with Steel City's Fire Chief in just a minute, but first, let's hear a word from our sponsor. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop highly advanced safety equipment to protect you on the job. MSA's Globe Gear is performance and protection in perfect balance. It's designed to meet the challenges you face every day to help keep you safe and healthy during your career and beyond. Get the full story at msafire.com globe. That's msafire.com globe. Daryl E. Jones entered the fire service in 1986 and has been a chief officer since 1995. Dr. Chief Jones holds a PhD in public safety. He has completed the National Fire Academy EFO program and is a certified fire officer. He's currently serving as the chief of the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania Bureau of Fire. And Chief Jones is an instructor for the National Fire Academy, the Pennsylvania State Fire Academy, and Point Park. University. He's also a member of the Metro Chief Section of the NFPA and the International Association of Fire Chiefs. Chief, I want to thank you for joining us today. And you know, recently we ran a couple of articles asking people why they joined the fire service and really diving into the question of whether the fire service is what they signed up for. Can you share a little bit about your background and why you joined the fire service? Hello, Chief. First off, let me thank you for that warm welcome and glad to be here. Uh, yes, I can more than happy to share with you why I joined the fire service. And it was very simple. I needed a job. Uh, I had just gotten discharged from the Marine Corps. I come home uh, and I needed a job. I was working, believe it or not, as a security guard for a nuclear power station here in Western Pennsylvania. And uh, my job, I found out, was that I was supposed to scream into the radio right before the terrorists killed me coming over the fence. So I was armed with a nightstick, a radio, and a small can of mace. There you go. (laughs) I had a little more self-worth than that. So... uh, one day uh, they told me that the uh, our local Alcoba Fire Department was hiring, and I took the test and scored number one on the test. And just to familiarize myself with the job, I joined the Volunteer Fire Department mm-hmm. in Alcoba, and that was uh, back in 1986. And I, I was there for about a year before I got on full time on a career side. And I did 20 years there, uh, leaving there in 2007 when I came to the city of Pittsburgh. Yeah, very good. Yeah, much the same path I took, starting as a volunteer and uh, working my way up. So it's good stuff. So, you know, to that question, though, of is this what you signed up for, um, can you talk to us about that and whether your perception of the fire service Uh, is that it is the same thing you joined for or the same it was as when you joined. And then second to that, did you ever envision yourself running a major metro fire department? Well, uh, first, 
is it the same? I will have to say it, it is not the same. And I'm thinking that's pretty much a good thing. Um, I do a lot of uh, uh, talks and everything. And one of the things I talk about is why we do what we do. What was your why when you first got into the fire service? Uh, I call it, this is my why. There are many like it, but this one is mine. That's that Marine Corps coming out of me. Um, My initial thoughts, like I said, was I needed a job. Yeah. And so uh, the plan was to get on with the fire department because in my mind, not knowing enough about firefighting, uh, the firefighters didn't do anything but sit around the fire station. And while they're doing that, I could be studying, finishing up my degree. And every once in a while, I get the chance to drive the truck. How cool is that? You know? yeah. So I was on the job as a career firefighter for uh, two months. Uh, and on October the 10th, 1987, I had a, uh, my first fatal fire involving children. And three children died. And uh, uh, although I attempted rescue, I was not successful. And uh, that was the aha moment for me. Things changed then for me because Aliquippa was such a small and poor community. I was one of nine men on a department on the career side in Aliquippa. We could not afford to have a career fire department, but at the same time, we could not afford not to because of the fire load and the the building construction and things like that. So that's when uh, I start, stopped thinking about myself and started thinking about my community. So my why initially changed right then and there. It wasn't about me having a job so I could pay my bills to go to school to get my degree and then to move on to be rich or whatever aspirations I had. That was the first time it changed. Uh, The second time it changed was in uh, February the 14th of 1991. I lost five kids and one adult in a structural fire. And that was the last time I stopped counting children that were uh, died in Aliquippa due to fires. And I've had many more since then. I just don't know how many. So my why changed again. I went from being the adrenaline rush, loving to go in to fight the fire, taking the heat. Uh, Suppression was it was all about suppression to it should all be about prevention. So that's those are different changes that I went through in my personally in my career as it relates to the fire service in in general. uh, I think we're moved to a better place. I think we're a little more safety conscious now, or I would like to hope that we are. When I first started, you were called some some non flattering things. If the first thing you did was grab an air pack, the air pack was in a case in the back compartment. Yeah. it needed uh, to stay there and stay clean for inspection. Yes, yes. And we were told you breathe off the nozzle. Well, that's all well and good if you're on the nozzle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're one of two guys back, not so pleasant, right? So uh, I think that our recollection of safety, <clears throat> excuse me, our recollection of uh, or, or our cognizance, I should say, of uh, 
mental health is different. Uh, as I look back on it now, after that first fatal fire, I believe that I was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder because of the things that I was going through. But at that time, post-traumatic stress disorder was for uh, Vietnam era veterans who saw combat. Mm -hmm. The rest of us was just weak or soft, you know, and uh, I was on my way down the path of destruction, but fortunately I had uh, good parents and a strong family. And uh, I remember my dad uh, saying that me and him had to have a talk. And when me and my brother was growing up, whenever my dad says, hey, I need to talk to you down in the basement, you were not going to be happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he says, I need to talk to you down in the basement. And I'm like, uh, you do realize eight years in the Marine Corps, things might not work out the way you think they're going to work <laughs> out here. And uh, he goes down and he just asked me, what's going on with you? And and I had all this and it just came out and and, uh, you know, he got me out of it. As some as I like to tell people, he shook it out of me. So. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah, but now we recognize that those things can happen and. uh uh, I, I always relate that at the same time I was having my issues uh, with those three kids, baby Jessica was trapped in the well. Mm. It's all around that same time frame, October yeah. of 87. And the poor guy who rescued baby Jessica didn't fare so well. And that was a happy ending. You know? And mm. so uh, I think we're a little more sensitive to that. We're definitely more sensitive to the cancer. Okay, and I think that's great. Uh, how cool was it when you were younger and you see the old salts overhauling in the building, uh, SCBA mask around their neck, cigarette dangling from their lips, and they're pulling plaster and stuff with the hooks, and everything's still off gassing. Yeah. So in that respect, I think that we've come a long way. Yeah, and I think uh, you're absolutely right from the safety and awareness perspective the fire service has made leaps and bounds since the 1980s uh, and you're right uh, you were not considered of you know the at the time saying fireman's fireman you were not considered a fireman if you didn't come out filthy dirty and, um, uh, that was uh, that badge of honor that we now know many of our friends um, are dying from so um, not so much a badge of honor anymore and and I certainly appreciate that. You know, I wanted to go back to something you said. It's interesting, you, and you carry it throughout their career, uh, talking about what's your why. And I use a little bit of the same discussion and talking, especially with recruits. Not only what is your why, but what is our why uh, as an organization. And then I also now find myself talking to people who are at uh, their career end uh, or they think they are. And when um, I have someone come to me and say, you know, I'm thinking of retiring, Chief, and I'll say, uh, what's your purpose going to be? It's the same thing, you know, the what's your why, but what's your purpose going to be? And I can tell you more than one person has stepped back from that edge of retirement when they can't answer that question. Mm-hmm. So those are those are powerful uh, questions. What's your why and what's your purpose? And uh, I hope people can learn from that. And you know, just uh, take take that minute of reflection and ask yourself, uh, what's your why and what's your purpose? So good good stuff. And also, I think 
you mentioned about getting rich. I think if you wanted to get rich, you probably would have gone into real estate, right? Yeah, I would have done something else. <laughs> so, yeah, that was uh, good good stuff. So I, I understand as you were coming up, it wasn't always smooth for you. Um, you know, when you first joined the department, you faced some backlash. Uh, some called you, uh, I believe they called it, a you were an EEOC hire. Uh, despite the fact that uh, you had more qualifications than your predecessors. Can you help our listeners understand how you dealt with that and maybe help someone going through the same kind of situation now? Uh, Sure. And uh, let me start off by saying, because part of your question was, uh, did I ever envision myself running a Metro Fire Department? Oh, yeah. Forgot that. Forgot that. That answer is no. (laughs) I did not. Uh, But my family always told us, my brother and I, that where preparation makes opportunity, good things can happen. After the fire in 1987, that's when I really start preparing myself to do the job. First to do the job because people were depending upon me and I didn't want to let anybody down. And finding out that I was, there was so much more out there as far as the fire service that expanded beyond just Little Aliquippa and even the city of Pittsburgh. Um, I had old timers telling me, oh, you don't need to go take that training. I'll teach you everything you need to know. And come to find out they didn't know much. So I, I went on my own and out there to do that. So the opportunity came for me to uh, moved to the city of Pittsburgh. I come up here in July of 2007 as an assistant chief. And in September, I was elevated to chief. And the uh, I'm not saying there wasn't a learning curve. I went from a nine man to apartment to a nearly 700 person department in a couple of months, you know, and so there was a learning curve there. And there was resistance, and the resistance was for several reasons. Uh, one, I was an outsider. I did not come up through the system here in the city of Pittsburgh. And although I've been here for going on 15 years now, uh, I'm always going to be technically an outsider. Sure. That's just the way it is. Uh, number two, I was the uh, uh, the first minority that ever was chief of the Pittsburgh Bureau of Fire in 150 plus years that we've been around. So that caused some angst. And then not coming up from the system, coming from a small department, uh, being a minority, a lot of people were you know, jumping to conclusions. What could he possibly know? And the only reason he got the job is because he's black, which which bothered me, <clears throat> to be honest with you. And, and to an extent, I believe that uh, I've put myself now to a position where I try my best to make sure that they can't say that about me. You know, sure, I, sure. I, I've i uh, constantly training, constantly trying to improve, constantly trying to be better than tomorrow than I am today and today better than I was yesterday. And that's Maybe that's a little bit of undue pressure I put on myself, but uh, yeah, it keeps me sharp and it keeps me focused. The way I was able to get around that was just took time, 
and I had to be consistent. And uh, the consistency came about, uh, as you know, we are uh, a union shop here, International Association of Firefighters, local number one. One, yeah. a, a number they are very, very proud of, and rightfully so. And uh, so they were, they were come at me pretty hard. And I remember uh, the first meeting I had, the president at the time was Joe King. And he says, okay, chief, what's the plan? And I said, well, the plan is we need to become an all hazards department. And Joe in his gruff manner, what the hell does that mean? I said, well, <laughs> Joe, the fires are going away. We don't run fires anymore. The bulk of our calls are EMS calls. I said, in order to not become extinct, we have to change. We have to transform and become an all hazards department. And he had some more expletives with that and thought I was nuts. I says, look, let me put it to you like this, Joe. My vision, and it's up to me as the chief to set the vision for the department. My vision is to make the Pittsburgh Bureau of Fire the premier public safety agency in the world, not the premier fire department in the world, the premier public safety agency in the world. And that means that if the police, someone's beating you up and you need a police officer, by all means, call the police. But for everything else, from uh, grandma locked out of the house to uh, a terrorist setting off a WMD in the middle of downtown, the Pittsburgh Bureau of Fire is going to be a lead agency in all of that. And uh, that was my vision to start off with. And we moved forward from there. It was a slow move, a very, very slow move. And I think I kind of gained some traction because I, uh, I got questioned by one of the city council members at the time who says, hey, you know, you're about an $80 million hole in our budget. Why is fire so expensive? And my off-the-cuff comment was, because you're buying a Mercedes Benz and not a Yugo. And, and their immediate response was, yeah, right, you're just covering yourself up. So when I go back to the union and says, look, this is gonna become a problem. We need to justify why we're this hole in the budget. And their response was, how do we do that? I says, well, they're not gonna believe me. We need to have someone who doesn't have a dog in a fight make the case for us. So I said, the first thing we should do is seek to have an ISO class one rating. Mm -hmm. And they said, what's that going to take? And I told them that we need to train. We need to become completely certified and uh, what it all it would take in it. Like I said, it took time and this did not happen over a week. So months, this took, this took years. And uh, I remember we had a Fire Ops 101 that local one was putting on and they invited all of the politicians and the media and community activists and everything to participate. And it was a great day. <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of fun, a lot of hard work. We might have had about 30 or 40 people go through the class. And at the end of the day, Everybody sitting on the bleachers at the training academy, sweating, trying to drink water and Gatorade and everything else. They're tired. 
And I get up and I tell the people, I says, how do you feel? And they're all moaning about being tired. I says, well, if you work for us, you'll still have 16 more hours to go on your shift. <laughs> and I got the response. Yeah. And then the union spoke. And it was the vice president at the time who spoke. And he stands up there. He says, ladies and gentlemen, the Pittsburgh Bureau of Fire is transitioning into an all hazards department. And the first thing I did was clutch my chest because I'm thinking, right. oh, man. So now I go, I run behind the building. I do my little happy dance because he said it openly and publicly. And I like, I got you now. Right. First thing Monday morning, I called him up. We had a meeting. He says, okay, how are we going to do this? And we worked out the step-by-step step how we're going to do this. So the 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 uh, payoff for all that, the product, the end product, uh, we were, I believe, I might be wrong, I believe we were the first metro-sized department to be 100% certified. We didn't wait to do it by attrition. We reached back and grabbed the old timers, albeit kicking and screaming some of them, up to the certification level of at least a firefighter too. We uh, increased a lot of our company program, training programs, and we did a lot with our fire prevention, uh, which was pretty much devastated after uh, the economic shutdown in the 80s. And we managed to get up to that ISO class one rating. So uh, my the answer to your question, how do you get over it? Uh, you can't you, you can't take take it personal. There's going to be insults and attacks, and they've uh, they they've come at me hard. They've even gone went so far as to make comments about my wife and my son mm. and things like that. So, but you got to ignore it, and you got to remember what your goal is, because if you start exchanging blows, you spend all your time fighting, and won't be able to get anything done. Yeah, so you went from a class four, ISO class four, to class one, right? Yeah, we uh, had a brief stop at a class two. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so, I mean, that's huge for the insurance companies that use ISO ratings, and not all of them do, but for the insurance companies that do, that use ISO ratings, that is huge for especially homeowners, but also businesses, uh, in reductions in their insurance ratings. So, yes, uh, and, and it gave me some ammo when I say, hey, you're getting the Mercedes Benz and not the uh, Yugo. Yeah. I say, hey, I'm not saying that. This company over here who rates fire departments around the country, right. they're saying that. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, another thing you said I wanted to expand on real quick, uh, the, the Fire Ops 101, phenomenal program that the IFF does. Uh, I know this podcast is not for the IFF, but uh, it's worth uh, touting it. The uh, Fire Ops 101 program, we had a similar situation in Prince George's County and uh, had that every year. And uh, this one particular year, we were out of ladder trucks. And uh, we had to borrow a ladder truck from a neighboring jurisdiction for the Fire Ops 101 uh, class. Uh, and, it, you know, there was no strategy to it other than we were out of ladder trucks. So, um, we brought this other county's truck in, and the uh, one of the politicians said to the union president, and then uh, to the chief at the time, "Hey, uh, why why is that truck here from that other county?" 
And, uh, you know, everybody said, well, because we're out of trucks, we just don't have any more. They're broke. Within six weeks, we had a million dollars added to the budget to be able to buy a ladder truck as a direct result of the interaction, the positive interaction of that Fire Ops 101 program and what it brought to the table. So there's two examples of how um, you can certainly use that to your advantage. And I think that's important for folks that haven't used that program, uh, not only to keep their politicians and the media and everybody else in, engaged, but uh, you know, use it to your advantage to do what's right for your community. So great stuff for you, Chief. I appreciate you you uh, telling us about that. And, and you know, you mentioned uh, I was going to ask you in a different way, but I think I'll ask you here. You, you mentioned the, the naysayers and, you know, I call them snipers. Um, so I talk about there's basically I used to talk about four different types of people, leaders, managers, followers and slugs. And in the last year or so, I've added snipers to the list. Um, those are the five types of people that we're all going to deal with. And I'd like you to restate your philosophy about engaging those those naysayers, those snipers and um, how you deal with them while ensuring your organizational focus remains on the mission. So, yeah, you also have to think about this, too. And a lot of those, the naysayers slash snipers are people who are afraid of change. Sure. And the question is, why are they afraid of change? And basically, they're not really afraid of the change. They're afraid of losing something. Right. Whether it's going to be prestige, uh, you know, position. Money's huge, of course. Nobody wants to lose money. And so you have to, to kind of address some of that and try to get them to understand that this is change is good. And in the end, you're going to be better than you are now. Right. So that sometimes is a very hard sell. But either way, uh, you need to go ahead and uh, a leader in an organization that needs to make changes, that leader needs to go ahead and start that change. There is great risk to that leader personally and professionally for trying to institute the change. But you got to have some guts, you know, gut check time. Time to uh, put some stuff on the road, come up with a plan and go for it. You know, uh, I tell people all the time, I says, if you get on there and you maintain the status quo. People, some people will say, hey, he was a great guy, great leader. Other people <clears throat> at worst will probably think of you with indifference because mm-hmm. it's the same old, same old. But if you go out there and you shake up the status quo, you start doing things different, you're going to either be a great leader or you're going to be an enemy of the world. Sure. There's no sure. middle ground right there. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, you're going to have to balance that. You talk about change. You're going to have to balance that. Uh, the perceptions that people have, uh, whether we like it or not, we've got to balance that and whether they feel you're just making change for change, change's sake or, um, you know, whether there is a more strategic look at that. And that's that's a lot of times that's a difficulty is dealing with those people. They become such uh, weights or, uh, you know, ankle weights um, that but you've got to deal with them. You can't just drag them along. Well, 
and and remember uh Lee Iacocca. Lead, follow, or get out of the way, right? Remember yeah. that? So I I have one more I added on Na- to it. Name of a presentation I just did at FRI uh, this year, lead, follow, or get out of the way. Well, well, you can rename it, lead, follow, get out of the way, or I'll run you over. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I, I reached out to these people. I tried my best to bring them along. I told them I would carry them if I had to. That was fine. Those who did not want to move at all, who was just completely resistant, I had to let go. And uh, we call those people casualties. They're just ones that can't make the trip. And that's what the organization and the mission still comes first. So you have to just have to let those people go and let it fall where they may. And uh, and move forward. Let's take a short break here and hear a word from our sponsor. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection and perfect balance. Like the Globe Guard Hood, which offers head and neck particulate protection with exceptional comfort and fit, reduced bulk under your helmet, and uninterrupted hearing for critical situational awareness. It's designed for the health and safety of what's underneath. That's you. Learn more about our hood's features and particulate blocking efficiency at msafire.com slash globe. That's msafire.com slash globe. Chiefs, let's talk for just a second about COVID. Uh, and I'm going to ask you kind of a two, two-pointed question here. One is, you know, how your department's dealing with the pandemic. And, uh, uh, and then also... You know, I've talked to chief after chief who's struggling with retention and, and low morale. And, uh, I, you know, I think a lot of that is relative to the current health conditions. Um, but can you speak to how you're dealing with that in your department and how your membership's dealing with that uh, perceived all around morale issue and, and how retention's going? It's a, kind of a multi-part question there, but if you could speak to that, I'd appreciate it. I am very fortunate when it comes to retention, uh, I do not have any turnover or very little turnover at all. Uh, voluntary separation in the 15 years I've been here, uh, I think I've had three people voluntarily leave the Fire Bureau other than retirement, not in, not counting retirees. Sure. Um, one of them uh, wanted to go into business for himself. And that's what he did. The second guy, he also had some other plans and it took him out of state. So he left. He wanted to go south. The third guy, his wife hit the Powerball. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) So he got out of here like the place was on fire. Uh, But I don't have much of a problem with retention. I don't have much of a problem with recruitment. My recruitment is down. My let me let me quantify that. My I have a problem with diversity in my recruitment. Hmm. Uh, 656 uniformed people here in the fire bureau and four of them are women. Four. Yeah. That's that's a big a big problem. So I'm working hard to find out. Uh, the city recognizes it's a problem. We had a study done to determine what the barriers are, and we're trying to work around that. As far as COVID goes, uh, a lot of us at first, and not myself included, 
was thinking it's the flu. Just wash your hands. Don't stick your fingers in your mouth and you should be all right. Well, that that obviously wasn't the case. And before it really got to a point where it affected us, uh, we had working with in collaboration with uh, labor come up with a committee and with a plan to protect our guys as much as possible. Despite all of that, my highest point of people being off with COVID during the height of the pandemic was 17 percent. And uh, I'm sorry, that was the lowest. My highest was 24 percent. And I worked hard to get it below 17 percent, but we never did up until the point where the vaccine came out and uh, roughly 75% of the department is vaccinated. The other 25% uh, refuse to become vaccinated either for health reasons, because they're immunocompromised or something else, or they just don't believe this is a problem. Sure. So you, you have that that to deal with just like nationwide. Right now I have, uh, well, up until yesterday, I have a, a recruit class in the academy. 28 recruits, all but four are vaccinated. One of the vaccinated recruits got ill yesterday. We sent him home. He went and got tested, tested positive for COVID, and he had the vaccine. And yeah. he's still positive with symptoms. So immediately sent the four guys that didn't get the vaccine into quarantine for 10 days and the instructors that were around this guy uh, has to go into quarantine for 10 days, those who were not vaccinated. So mm -hmm. it's still out there. It's a risk. Uh, we wear masks uh, out at the academy. When I go to a meeting, I have to wear a mask. We're still doing, still washing the hands like crazy. Um, but we did a lot to protect ourselves. We bought new face pieces from uh, your sponsor, MSA. Uh, so now uh, each firefighter has two face pieces, one for structural firefighting that marries up with the SCBA. And the second one has an adapter for P100 uh, filters for when they go on the medical calls. We had mandated mask wearing in the stations and social distancing even in the stations. There was no uh, visitors allowed to the stations. And whenever they went out on the call, if they were exposed to COVID, we had uh, our EMS service had a sniper team go around and sanitize the trucks and the stations. So uh, we put up a heck of a fight against it, and uh, everybody was a little bit, you know, well, so you you have 17 percent, you have 17 percent, and I said, look, the goal is as low as reasonably achievable. And I could have no one sick if I sent them all home, but that's not reasonable. So 17 mm percent -hmm. seemed to be our floor. And I'm pretty comfortable that we did everything we could. And that was the best we could do. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that, that's good. It's, uh, you know, the numbers are all over the place. Uh, in my example, 50 uh, percent of my staff has had COVID. Uh, and that's it's just it's just the way it is. Uh, our vaccination rate's not as high, uh, but our um, 
fortunately no line of duty deaths here. Have you had any line of duty deaths up there attributable to COVID? No, none, none from the uh, Pittsburgh Fire Bureau. We had one young firefighter who did die in the middle of this. Uh, system shut down, but it was deemed not to be COVID related. Mm, yeah. um, we did other, we had one other city employee, I believe he was from the Department of Public Works, who died from COVID. And I personally have had a couple friends that died from it, but no yeah. one inside the bureau. Yeah. Well, there, there's uh, some positivity there, and uh, hopefully you can keep the morale up and, and keep people focused on service and the delivery and that all hazards approach. And it sounds like you're doing that. Um, you know, as we as we think about uh, the naysayers, snipers we talked about, and, and now we just talked about the people who uh, may not be taking COVID seriously, uh, may not think it's a thing. Do you have anything to say to them? How, how do you, as a chief, and I'm not necessarily asking you to talk to those, but to help other chiefs who might be having that same issue, what do you say to them? How do you help them come around to your point of view or to be focused on that mission and have that positive outlook? Well, the first thing is, again, you got to keep it on a professional level. Uh, this is something that the people I've talked to is personal with them. Yeah. It, it, and so it's not about, you know, they, they just feel that, hey, I have an immune system. I'll get over it. Went, okay, that's fine. I said, but it may not. And some people don't believe that is they still believe it's a hoax. That's the guys that for the bulk of them that won't get the vaccine, don't want to wear the mask. Well, I can't make you get the vaccine, but you got to wear the mask. And I don't dispute whether it's a hoax or not, but I have a family at home. I have a wife and a son. Why take it home and risk them? Yeah. For me to wear a mask and you to call me a sheep for wearing the mask is a small price to pay to keep them healthy. Sure. So it doesn't, that's, that's one of, you know, you got to let it go and stay focused. Yeah. On so I, when you're talking to them, you know, just remember, guys, what about your brothers here that you're fighting these fires with, you know, and your sisters? We always you know this is we're a family. OK, then let's act like one. Yeah. I don't get everything I want in my family and I don't know anybody who does. There's every time there's a compromise. Can we compromise on this sure. and come to something, some type of agreement? It sounds like you got a pretty good relationship with the, with the union overall. Um, has has the union been supportive of the efforts to to uh, you know protect people and, and get the vaccine and uh, or has there been friction there? No, there has not been any friction between uh, the union leadership and me over this. We come up with this the policies and stuff together. I can't say for sure but i get the feeling that there some of their members are not happy with their leadership for various reasons relating to COVID, the restrictions and things like that sure. they're not happy yeah. with but uh they're managing that and uh we, ju we just gotta do what we gotta do to get through this you know yeah and it may or may not be true but of course you've heard it said before if everybody's happy somebody's not doing their job that's right you know yeah. I, I tell tell fire chiefs and, and young firefighters all the time you want to make 
everybody happy, go sell ice cream. Exactly. I was going to say, yep, go sell ice cream. You know, you mentioned your wife and kids a couple minutes ago, and, and some of the things you've written about, you've talked about some of those that have helped you be successful. Your family, uh, the team you built there in Pittsburgh, um, and the alliances you built with the union and with others. And then you talk about the traits for chiefs to be successful and how um, passion and loyalty. Um, I mean, that sounds like it fits both the team building and the and the leadership discussion. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. Um, there's multiple traits out there for good leaders, you know, and you may not even like the person who's been doing the leading, but they have the traits, you know. Uh, at the most basic level, in the fire service, you have to have good technical skills, good communication skills, good conceptual skills. You have to be able to see down the road, have good vision. You know, that that's at the most basic level. And I, I try to tell people that I be talking to about leadership, uh, some of us aren't born with those traits, but we can emulate them, you know, and uh, be successful in that way. Relationship building is critical to doing this because, uh, I, I, full disclosure, I am not the smartest guy in the Pittsburgh Bureau of Fire. I am not the best firefighter, hazmat tech rescue, swift water rescue tech or anything else, nor do I have to be. Sure. You know, so I have uh, people who are very, very good, and I try to follow a transformational leadership style where I trust them to do their job. I just give them the resources that they need to do the job and stay out of their way. Yeah. And, and in a lot of cases, what more could you ask for? Yeah. Listen, uh, we're coming to a close, Chief. Do you have anything you want to add? Uh, no, just again, I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, but I do want to just say one thing about the leadership. Okay. And I, I, I tell people this as well. If you cannot stand up to the challenge, you will fall to your highest level of training. Mm-hmm. If you are wearing a white hat and your highest level of training is firefighter one or firefighter two, that's a long fall mm -hmm. from the challenges you may face. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two is that nature hates a vacuum. You don't believe me? Go out in your backyard, dig a hole and wait a little bit and see how long it takes for that hole to fill in. An organization, no matter what organization it is, church, fire department, hospital, no matter what, an organization will accept bad leadership, an organization will accept good leadership, an organization will not accept no leadership. So if there's a void, a vacuum in a leadership position, somebody's going to get sucked into it. If a good leader doesn't step up and assume that position. And last but definitely not least, 
there's a multitude of leadership philosophies, leadership styles out there. Back in the old days, there was three, right? Autocratic, democratic, laissez-faire. Now there's about three or four dozen. I mean, yeah. everybody, everybody has a book on it. The one that style that you want to avoid at all costs is toxic leadership. Yeah. Toxic leadership is a guy that says, because I wear the white helmet, that's why. Or yeah. do it or else, you know, that kind of thing like that. Uh, an organization is not going to fare well under toxic leadership. Mm. Other than that, I just want to thank you again, Chief, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. This is great. And uh, anytime you, you you get bored and you want to hear me ramble some more, let me know. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll have to get together and do one of these together one day. So I want to I want to repeat a couple things you just said, and that was that an organization will accept good leadership, an organization will accept bad leadership, that an organization will not accept no leadership, and that organizations need to avoid they they can accept all kinds of leadership except for toxic leadership. That's great stuff. Uh, that's all we have time for today. We've been talking with Chief Daryl Jones from the Pittsburgh Bureau of Fire. Chief, thanks for joining us and thanks to our listeners for being here with us. Have a great day on purpose. This is Mark Bashur, Executive Editor for Fire Rescue One and FireChief.com. Stay smart, keep safe, and take care. <laughs>